You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Ruthie's Table 4, a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. A few months ago, my good friend Lorne Michaels texted me to say that Tina Fey was coming to London to star in the movie. He knew I would love her. From the first meeting, it became a friendship formed with food. Tina arrived at our house with a beautiful box of chocolates for me, as brought up to do by her mother, and I brought home a River Cafe lemon tart for her. The first dinner, I made slow-cooked tomato pasta. She ate two portions, and then we played cards. <laughs> How dare you remember that? You did. I think maybe it was three. I'm actually, you know, (laughs) being polite. Of course, millions of us have shared food with Tina Fey in 30 Rock, which she wrote and starred in, and even her name, Liz Lemon, was food-related. Sandwiches never to be shared, hard cheese eaten at midnight, advice given to John McEnroe on where to buy the best cupcakes in New York City, her obsession with hot dogs resulting in a food warning from the street vendor. On SNL, a brownie husband devouring a cake while discussing riots and Weekend Update, and who could forget the cafeteria scene in the movie she wrote, Mean Girls. Well, you've just been in the River Cafe kitchen. What was it like? Oh, my God. It's the most beautiful dance happening in the kitchen, everyone working so perfectly. I'm Sean Winnowen, and I'm the executive chef at the River Cafe. Today we're making tomato tagliarini with Tina Fey. We're going to make a tagliarini with slow-cooked tomato sauce and butter, mm-hmm. which is probably one of Ruthie's secrets, is mm-hmm. adding the butter to it. I mean... Aha! Now we know. It's okay, about, now we know. That's about a half a cup of butter in a one-person portion. <laughs> oh, it smells so good. Is that on the plate? Uh, yeah. Only because we can't pour it right into my mouth here at the station. This gorgeous. If I could marry a non-human entity, <laughs> I would marry this person. <laughs> um, thank you for joining us. Thank you. You're here doing a film. Yes, with I'm here uh, acting in a movie called A Haunting in Venice, directed by Sir Kenneth Branagh. It's an Agatha Christie-inspired murder mystery, and it's been very fun to be here shooting in an ensemble with some really great actors, Michelle Yeoh and Jamie Dornan and Camille Catan and Kelly Riley, and it's just been fun to be basically in on the Haunted Mansion ride at Disney World. I've just been inside that ride for three months because we're on this set that's like a spooky old Venetian palazzo in the dark all day, every day for three months. Is the culture of filming in Britain, in Europe, in London very different? And back to food, is it a different food culture that you have It is a little different. We, our lunch is, our hours are very civilized here. We stopped every day at six on the dot, which at home, depending on who you're working for, you could drift into eight o'clock, 10 o'clock, 1 a.m. You could work really Really? late. Yeah, we stop, our lunch is very short. It's only 
the half an hour, which was sort of, we weren't used to it at first, but then I grew to really like it because then you don't kind of lose momentum. Usually you come back from Americans that you come back from lunch a little sleepy mm. you have to get a coffee, but this was a half hour lunch and then back in and, um, and just everyone offering you tea constantly. Oh, really? Still. Drinking so much tea, <laughs> which is nice. Tea and, and digestives. Is there a food scene in it? I didn't get to do any on-camera eating. Oh, no. um, it's a like shame. There was a nice thing on set, which was, again, because food is the only way to communicate with people, because the cast were all from different places, we started um, kind of sharing our favorite unique snacks from mm -hmm. our countries, which started because somehow I was, it was, it was Halloween when mm -hmm. I first got here, and I was talking about candy corn. And of course, no one here knew what that was. And so I had a friend bring me a couple bags of candy corn to share. And we started taking a poll. We'd give it to the Brits and, and film their reactions. Yeah. Um, and people thought it was disgusting, yeah. which I respect. I love it. But it was a great conversation starter when we were all new to each other mm. and we were like kind of an icebreaker. Mm. And then other people started bringing in uh, a woman, Wakana Yoshihara is our head of our... Um, hair and makeup department and she's Japanese. And so she started bringing in Japanese candy and we were mm. trying like, and some were great, some were disgusting. She had these plum candy that looks yeah. like a children's vitamin. Yeah. I apologize <laughs> to anyone that loves these, but she was so amused to film each of us trying them. And it's so funny that something could be a complete comfort treat yeah. to her that to my palate was horrible. Mm. And same with the candy corn. And then some of the Brits started bringing, it was getting closer to Christmas and uh, Kelly Riley brought in, she said, this is the cheap chocolate that we grew up with. It was quality street mm, mix yeah. of chocolates. And then uh, Emma Laird was bringing different kinds of crisps. Mm. And then we kept asking Camille Catan, who's French, like, what, mm. you know, what's unique? What kind of weird candy can you bring? And she was like, I don't know what I can bring. And then she brought, by the way, why am I imitating her? Like she's Salma Hayek. <laughs> she doesn't speak like that. Um, and, uh, and then she, Camille showed up with gorgeous yeah. cheese from France for yeah. the whole crew. That's she's just, like, we that, don't eat garbage. Yeah. 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 So that, she brought yeah. this like gorgeous, gorgeous cheese. The one thing I used to love with it, Saturday Night Live, Saturday was the most fun day because it's the day where it's finally all happening and mm -hmm. you can spend a lot of time being worried. And then Saturday, you just have to kind of go down the slide, you know, and we would have these crew lunch dinner, I guess. We'd sort of rehearse from 1 p.m. till about 5.30 p.m. And you'd go down to the NBC cafeteria mm -hmm. and have lunch with everybody or mm -hmm. dinner with everybody. That's one of my favorite yeah. memories of working there, actually. When you're producing a film or a theater, do you think about what people are going to eat? I mean, I always, if I'm producing something, I want the food to be good. And to be ample, and oftentimes, if you want to reward the cast and crew, you send more food. We send like food trucks, like pizza truck, coffee truck. Yeah, so the food is. In my, I believe food is the only reward in yeah. life. In life, uh, <laughs> good. I like that. <laughs> sure, money, yeah, sure, but food. Yeah, food. Yeah, we used to have a wonderful lady who's no longer with us, woman angel, who was in charge of what's called craft services on Thirty Rock, which is you have your meals, you get in. Like, there's a truck. There's catering, does breakfast and lunch, but. All the food that you just eat in between that all day, there would just be a table in the hallway with food. And Angel had so much passion about her job. And she was Italian-American from Staten Island. And she would show up with these things. We'd be like, Angel, what is this? Mm. She would just bring him these beautiful, like, whatever, like balls of mozzarella, these crazy breads. What was that, like, rolled up artichoke bread and all this stuff? It was so much more than what you would normally get, like, a bowl of apples and some candy. And... This episode of 30 Rock, there's a whole storyline about the perfect sandwich. Yeah. And there's this thing where um, 
I'm chasing a guy that I love through the airport, but I, I they want love me to take that scene. Well, you, when, they, when you don't go through, they want like, me to take my sandwich and I say, no way. Yeah. But for first, you have to describe that scene. You, I'm not going to do it because okay. I think it is one of the great scenes in food. And Thank you. I, I, I will say, I think as an actor, perhaps my only specialty is on camera eating. <laughs> I commit to it. I'm great at it and so so this is a scene where Liz Lemon is yeah she's chasing her love interest who is played by Jason Sudeikis who you all may know as Ted Lasso and uh, I'm chasing through the airport and I've been also the other part of the story is I've been trying to get the teamsters the union drivers to tell me where they get these great sandwiches so I've got my special sandwich and the security guard at the airport says you have to leave the sandwich behind you can't take it through and I I say no I believe women can have it all, and I'm going to eat this sandwich in one bite before I go through security, and I'm still going to catch the man. And so it came down to Angel, this woman who did our craft service. I said, Angel, this is a special assignment for you. I need you to make me the perfect sandwich. Normally, it would have been the props department, but I said, Angel, you're going to make the sandwich, and, and I need it to be, I need to be able to eat it in one bite. So she went to these bakers that she knew in Staten Island and had them custom make, I don't know what it was, the softest, yeah, I was most say the delicious bread. Must bread. Have been really soft. Yeah. When I tell you that sandwich, I can remember to this day. Mm. That sandwich was so delicious. What was in it? Do you remember? It was an Italian sub, so it had like some salami and some mm. what I would call gabagool, some cheese. It wasn't a fake sandwich, mm. and I ate it in one I saw take. And I remember saying. They were like, we got it. And I was like, did we? Because if you need me to do it again, I am willing to, because it was so good. But the credit goes to Angel because the bread, yeah, like melted in my mouth. One of the most delicious things was very simple. We lived at five, five stories up in this tenement. And uh, my mother would throw in, in throw down in a brown paper bag, a Kaiser roll, smeared with a lot of butter, and almost a whole tomato, sliced and salted. And with that, and it was the most delicious thing. And you'd catch it. And I'd, I'd always catch it, but yeah. one time I missed it, and splat. Mel Brooks makes the world laugh. Watch the producers, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, listen to the 2,000-year-old man, or read his autobiography, All About Me, and you are guaranteed to find yourself laughing out loud. But for me, having known Mel for 25 years, funny is not the first word I would use to describe this amazing man. Hungry. Hungry! (laughs) Before I forget, I would like to do my imitation of a cat. Wow! That is a perfect sound. It's hard oh, to do. Hard to do. I do it in, in Young Frankenstein. I think it's it's a dart throwing contest, and one of the darts <laughs> hits a cat. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> Let's begin at the beginning. Begin at the beginning. Earliest food memories. What do you remember from you know your early days? Did did your mother cook? Yeah, did my you? mother. Okay, it was it was a standard Williamsburg, Brooklyn, Jewish tenement. Food. Huh. So breakfast in the winter was always a hot cereal, cream of wheat or Ralston, which was a kind uh, of brown porridge, yeah. brown porridge. And then in the summer, cornflakes, Rice Krispies, or Wheaties. What year would that have been? How old would you have been? I, I would, 
that would be 35. I'd be around nine. Mm -hmm. That's when I went. My Uncle Joe, shortest Jew on earth. How short? When I, when How I, short? He was a kid. He was about 4'4". Four, four. Okay. When, when, a, when a taxi, a big checkered taxi cab rolled down the streets of Brooklyn and there was no driver. That, that was, was Joe. Joe. You could, <laughs> you, you could, there was no driver. He was so short. He could just about peer over the, you know. Anyway, Joe took me because his friend Al was the doorman uh -huh. of the Alvin Theater on 52nd Street. And running at that same theater was Cole Porter's Anything, Anything Goes. Goes. I had never seen a Broadway show. I was nine years old, and Uncle Joe took me to see Anything Goes. I was stunned. I was I couldn't believe it. Even though we were in the second balcony, as far away from the stage uh -huh. as you can get, Ethel Merman was too loud. No mics. She was just very... She but, was in Anything Goes? Anything Goes. Who did she, William did she play, Gaxton. Did she play the mother? The, yeah, yeah. The, the woman. The, on the, it's on a ship, isn't it? Anything it's on goes? the ship. Very good, yeah, very good. Yeah. And uh, Victor Moore yeah. was, was the gangster. Oh, the gang... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was so... I love at that. the end, I nearly clapped my hands off. I just couldn't stop clapping and screaming and shouting. And then I got back in Uncle Joe's cab. I said to him... Uncle Joe, I'm not going into Garment Center. Everybody at 365 South 3rd Street yeah. between on Hooper and, and uh, Hughes, 365 South 3rd Street. Everybody in that building worked in the Garment Center. They were shipping clerks. They were cutters. They were designers. They were salesmen. They, everybody, I think, on the street, 361, 363, 365, these tenements, everybody's in the garment set, and I screamed at my Uncle Joe, Uncle Joe, I'm not, I'm not going into the garment center. I'm not. I'm going to go into show business. I loved it. I loved it. You know, and it changed what it did. And I did. And, and, and did. Because and did you, of cold water. Would he take water, you to food? Would he take you out to eat? Would yeah, you, well, you know, the once in a while. I always went to the theater as a kid, and then there was the meal afterwards. Or the yeah. Lunch before. It was a day well, out. Well, we... We had some favorites that Uncle Joe would take us to. Where? One was called Gallagher's Steakhouse. Uh -huh. They had like half a cow in the window. Uh -huh. They always had these half cows in the window. You know, Just the raw meat. Raw meat. Yeah, hanging. hanging Gallagher's. Yeah. And, 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 the, and the steak was incredible. Yeah. And sometimes we'd go to Jack Dempsey's restaurant. And what was that? And it was great, but, you know, it, it was... Uh, it was all meat. It was never any fish in a restaurant. Yeah. And I never mm. liked fish. Mm. I don't think I ever liked fish until I was 70 or 80 and I went to the River Cafe and had uh, so. So really, you never mm. ate fish either. I hardly then. ever ate fish as a kid. Yeah. But it's interesting to me that you, you describe a kind of modest uh, home life in terms of going yeah. to food. But you, went out to, but you went out to restaurants. So yeah, once did, in a while. How did they afford restaurants? The, was that a treat? Some re a lot of Jewish restaurants were called dairy restaurants, mm. and they'd serve stuff like blintzes with sour cream mm. and, and uh, all dairy. You never know, mixed meat and dairy with something, mm. some religious nonsense. Did, did your grandmother cook for you? My grandmother cooked. What did she cook? Oh, Which grandmother, your mother's mother or your father? My mother's mother. I never knew my You mother. never knew your father's mother? No, no, my father's grandmother I did know. She did Seder meals, Passover right. meals, in Bensonhurst where they lived in a... In a a big one family house. Did they come? Were they first generation? Yeah, no, they were. They they were European. Yeah, born were, born in born Europe. Born in Europe. Here. 
And, and so do you think your grandparents brought their food with them, the food yeah, of their they culture? Yeah, they all, they all cooked the same stuff. They, what was know, it, Mel? Mostly it was chicken, chicken and chicken soup. and, mm -hmm. and uh, Brisket? Yeah, they made brisket, mm -hmm. absolutely. They mm -hmm. made brisket and brown potatoes. Do you know my grandparents came... They, were from, they came from Hungary and Russia. And my father remembers my grandmother having in the Lower East Side yeah. a carp swimming in the bathtub mm. that they would make a filter fish out of. So can you imagine having a, they would bring a live Same fish? Live fish. My you mother did? would get a live fish. Oh my gosh. My brother Bernie and I would usually, one, we, we loved and we called him Artie. <laughs> and we, we fed him breadcrumbs and we chased him around the bathtub. And then. It was unspeakable. I can't even describe it. What, the killing of the Irving, fish. my older, oldest brothers, Irving and Lenny, held us back. We were screaming, <laughs> don't kill him. And my mother would say, we've got to eat. We've got to eat supper. And she'd, she'd kill Artie and serve him Ugh. to us. And we would cry. And we, yeah. But we ate him. And then would you get another carp and kill that carp? We got another carp. It's yeah, so interesting carp. that they had live fish swimming in the bathtub. In the bathtub, <laughs> it's true. You know, that they <laughs> didn't... <laughs> It's amazing that you had the same. Yeah, my brother Michael, who you know, um, just wrote what I had found that something my father had written about his memories of food and just living in the Lower East Side. Uh, but I, you weren't in the Lower East Side. You were in Brooklyn. No, no, we were, well, Lower East was, Side, an extension of the Lower East Side was Williamsburg. But that was probably yeah. one step up, was it? Well, it was one step up if you put it next, next to a, a, a a section of Brooklyn called Bronzeville. What was Bronzeville? East New York. And that was really where they had coal stoves. They didn't yeah. even have gas. Yeah. You know, we had electricity and we had gas. So we were one step up above Bronzeville, equal to the Lower East Side. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other, as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to the European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. 
we were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In September, the River Cafe will be 36 years old. And one of the great joys of having a restaurant for so long is watching the second generation, and now even a third generation, of our early customers grow up. Adwa's parents, Charles Aboa and Camilla Lowther, have been part of the River Cafe family since we opened, and Adwa's gone from being a young child ordering pasta, butter, and cheese, and then playing in the garden space outside with her friends, to a formidable woman focused on the political and social issues relevant today. After her own struggles with mental health and to support young women's well-being, she founded the organization Girls Talk, providing a safe space for girls to access resources, share experiences, create community, and feel less alone, a place to escape the chaos of the everyday, I think a beautiful phrase. Today, Adwa's just come from the kitchen, grilling scallops and frying zucchini. It's both moving and exciting for me to have Adwa here. Oh, that was so nice. <laughs> Tell me about going to Vogue with Edward, because we did, yeah. um, when Edward Enifel became the editor, we did the party yeah. here. Do you remember that? We had a party for him. It was, was a great mental. party. You were the cover for his first issue. Yeah, yeah, that was mad, that Vogue party. I remember that like it was yesterday. Mm. Um, I remember what I was, was driving like? here and I, you know, Edward and I still laugh about it now. It's like, it wasn't naivety. I think it was just this, we were just doing something that felt very special to both of us. It was like this, we were embarking on this new journey and it wasn't necessarily that we were we were completely naive to how the world was going to embrace it. Mm. You know, not only just people in fashion, but worldwide. It, you know, it really went yeah. viral, do you know what I mean, yeah. I think. And so as we kind of pulled up, I pulled up, I can't remember who I was in the car with, maybe it was like my mum and dad and sister, and we pulled up the Shepherd's Bush roundabout, <laughs> and it was projected on Shepherd's Bush roundabout. What the <laughs> hell is going on? And I looked on my phone, and it was just like going mad and I actually like broke out into hives I was like oh my god this is so much I don't even know how to like deal with this situation I pulled up to River Cafe and Edwin and I just giggled we yeah. could not stop laughing I think we were both so overwhelmed yeah. by what had happened yeah. that we kind of just like could not stop laughing it was mad it still feels really mad we all had ravioli do you remember we had this long discussion before whether all the Vogue people, the models and the, the actresses and the young beauties of today would actually have gluten, carbs, cheese, butter, and whether we would serve it. And we did. And, the, and Vogue was actually really cool because we said, do you want to find out what people want to eat? And they go, no, we're done with that. We're done with, you know, if you have a food preference, we're just going to do the menu and what they eat, they eat. And everybody had ravioli and everybody, a lot of people had seconds of ravioli. And yet the, the whole issue at the t of being a model about your body, t talk about being a woman in a profession that requires you to be a certain shape and size. I think 
I don't remember being worried. I think there were moments when I was at school where I was kind of worried about what I looked like. Sometimes I didn't, I wasn't at a girls' school, but you know, I lived in a house full of women. So sometimes when someone would get a bit like weird with food or they'd have, you know, issues, it kind of sometimes bleeds into everyone else within the community. Do you know what I mean? We, we see that all the time. And I think. When I started modeling, I don't again remember feeling that pressured about it. I think I just felt like incredibly painful in my own body in general. So it wasn't necessarily like kind of weight related. Mm. Um, I think there's always been like parts of my body that I haven't like loved, do you know what I mean? And I've had to grow to love. Yeah. Um, Are you the kind of person that can eat but not gain weight? Um, yeah, because I've always done lots and lots of sports. But did, were other models that you were with, what, what, did you feel that to be a model you had to be a sport? Yeah, I got weird with food for a period of time where actually when I got sober, and they call that transference, you know, I think I was just trying to control something else in my life. So I got a bit weird with food when I was about 22. Um, I think it was just control, to be quite honest. And, um, and I think... Wait for me, you know, if I'm, I suffer with anxiety, you know, and so when I'm anxious, it just falls off. It do falls you know what I mean? off, yeah. yeah. I'm not the type of person, sometimes I am eating, I but it literally just falls off all the time. So sometimes I haven't even been, like, aware of, like, dropping weight. I think um, I've always done a lot of exercise and a kind of now do Pilates, so... I used to, I build a lot of muscle. So my body has changed, like, you know, over the course of, like, many years, I think. And so I think, um, but, Edward, I think when I got started modelling properly, I decided there was a part of me that had that to do it, to really kind of walk into it again. I had to take on... It was almost like a, it wasn't necessarily that I felt like that, but I had to be like, this is who I am, do you know what I mean? Like, mm. take it or leave it, do you know what I mean? I'm not going to be sucked into this idea that I should be thinner or look a different sort of way for you to kind of um, appreciate me or want me. So I had to, and that's not exactly how I felt all the time, but I had to sort of fake it to make it. So it wasn't necessarily, I think... I've always, I don't know, I was speaking on the pod, my own podcast about this the other day. I think, um, I wonder if my relationship with myself will ever be what I want it to be mm. whilst I model. Mm. Interesting, I don't I know if my, I have a, to a certain extent, a healthy relationship with myself. Mm. But I wonder if my relationship with my yeah. body will ever be what I want it to be as long as I'm kind of within the industry. And yes, it has changed like drastically, do you know what I mean? Um, the likes of um, amazing people spearheading um, different sorts of movements. But, you know, we only have to kind of look at certain photos or fashion yeah. shows and we see the kind of yeah. the pressure that's put when, on when us. I almost find it painful. I haven't been to that many catwalk shows. I think and probably it has changed. When you see... You know how thin and kind of serious, and you know. I know it's there to just showcase the 
the clothes. And so it's like being a, a hanger. But there is something as a woman to see women doing that job. It's a little bit Yeah, and also when you distressing. know that someone's like kind of unwell. Yeah. Whatever that looks like for different people. When you know someone's kind of suffering yeah. with, and you know, disordered eating. But they are praised and celebrated yeah. within the industry yeah. and they work even more. Yeah. It's... That in itself is an uncomfortable thing yeah. to get your head around. I think that's where sometimes the pressure for me lies. It isn't that I want to be unwell. It's just the fact that I see people doing well because of it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it, that's, yeah. a, that's, that's a mad thing to get your head around. When I told my friends that I would be recording a podcast with Rick Rubin this weekend, the responses were rapturous. What? Wow. Incredible. And can I come? It was the same in the River Cafe the other day when Rick was there. Grown men trembled. Women found excuses to hover near his table. Chefs could barely grill the sea bass. Rick Rubin is a decades-long creative force with a voice and influence that carries immeasurable weight. Co-founder of Def Jam, winner of seven Grammys, as a friend in music told me, Rick is unique. Together with discovering, mentoring, creating beautiful music with artists such as Adele, Eminem, Beastie Boys, Public Enemy, Run DMC, and for me, most movingly, Johnny Cash, his values, principles, and kindness guide everyone he comes close to. Tell me what happens when you go into the studio. You've eaten, definitely. You've had something I've to eat. eat. Yeah, I've eaten before. <laughs> and now, the way it used to work, for the majority of my life, I would wake up, do whatever I would do before going into the studio. But once I would go to the studio, that would be it for until I was time to go to bed. So I would spend... The majority of my time, and which also means in those days working in New York, it'd be a small room with no windows and I'd be there for as long as, you know, until the sun came up and then I would walk or take a taxi home. So the majority of my life, I would say for at least 25 years, was being in a, in a small dark room. So I had very little life outside of a recording studio because I worked so much for so long. Now I've found a way, and just through doing it enough, understanding what's important for me to be there for, what's not important for me to be there for, and now I tend to have lunch, go to the studio, work from maybe 1 till 6. And what do you do when you say you work? Listen to music and then talk about what we can try next. Sometimes we do it right then, and sometimes we're making a list of things to try after I leave in the evening. It depends. I always have anxiety when a project starts because I never know what's going to happen. We don't go in with any script. I prefer to go in when we have songs. But then there are a million ways to, to present a song. So there's always this sense of what's going to separate this body of work from the rest of the artist's body of work and everyone else's mm. work. And I don't know what that is going in. So it's a real uh, experiment. And we come in and I'm nervous until something good happens, like, ah. And then if that thing that's good, even if it's a, even if it doesn't end up this way, if it's a clue of what the whole vision of the project can be, mm. even if it's not the what it is, I feel better because at least there's a solution. Even if it doesn't end up being the solution, there's a possible solution and that feels good. Because I was reading about the way you work 
And you said that you start with an empty sheet, you know, that you basically start with nothing. Yes. And then you move from nothing to what you're, what you're going to record that day or work yes. in my own little way, in my own little restaurant. We come in with an empty sheet of paper and we write the menu. Of course, there are things that we always know we'll have mozzarella and we always know that we'll have four pastas and we always know that we'll have two dishes on the grill, two dishes in the wood oven and two dishes to roast. But it does start with a, with an empty sheet. Do you have a parallel in that? Absolutely. We I come and uh, we usually start by listening to any ideas that the artists have, whatever they are. They could be, it could be a song. They may play a whole song and then talk about how to do it, or they may play a demo of a whole worked out arrangement of a song with with musicians and everything. They may come in and with a a riff, you know, mm-hmm. just a little pe- a little snippet of a song or a melodic idea or a lyrical idea. And then we talk about ways of fleshing it out and what are the next stages and what can it be. Um, sometimes they'll come to me with a whole, uh, you know, body of work, like an album's worth of things that are in various stages of completion. And then we listen and see, is this something that we can, is this a starting point that we could build off of? Or is this almost like a recipe that we could use to start from scratch? You never know. It really is. um, And and then the experiments begin. We try different things. And I like the idea of, um, in the case of where someone brings in something, I like the idea of stripping back the elements and listening to what's there. And even if it wasn't done in, a, in an intentional way for the way that it's going to be used, sometimes you find very interesting things that uh, if you were trying to do it, you might not do. could be very interesting to listen to. It's also trust, isn't it? Yeah. That they trust what you're saying to them or they trust what your thoughts are. It's like if I gave you two dishes of food yeah. and I asked you to taste them and ask you which one you liked better the only right answer is the one that you like better. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? There is no right answer. It's with taste. It's you taste this, you taste this, tell me which one you like. And music? There's no wrong, same. What? Tell me what? There's no, there are no wrong answers in in taste. It is, I've been lucky that when I'm true to my taste, other people have liked it. Mm. It's not the case for everybody, but that's the best chance we have is to make the thing that we love and hope that someone else loves it. If you do something that you don't like with the idea that someone else might like it, what are the what are the odds that's going to be good? Yeah. Then no one might like it. At least at, at least I know person. I like it. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> I can go to person. sleep knowing it's the best I could do. I love it. If no one else likes it, it's okay. A certain person plays a guitar piece, and it's beautiful. And another person plays the same guitar piece, and there's this other magical dimension to it that you can't put a finger on. You don't know why it's... I don't even know if better's the right word. You don't know why it's different, because technically it looks the same. But one of them you want to hear over and over and over again forever, and you're filled with wonder... And the other one, it's the same notes in the same order at the same speed, played with great dexterity, but it doesn't have this other life to it. And I would say the same with food. It's the same with the recipe, isn't it? That you can say, I always say that a recipe is part poetry and part science. Yes. And that the science is the quarter of a teaspoon of baking powder or three tablespoons of sugar and 
And yet, as you say, the way it's stirred in, the way it's sifted, yes. the way it's put in the pan. So I have a question for you. How so. difficult is it to keep the consistency of the quality of the food with different people involved over time? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that we have very few chefs, so it's not a big kitchen. And we don't have, like you do in, in Los Angeles, when I was in kitchens, that you have one head chef and a lot of chefs on the line. Mm -hmm. So there is a kind of communication, really, of, of how you do it. But that is the that is what I look for every time if you come to eat. My fear is, is that, you know, I'm grilled sea bass coming to the table going to be the way it was the night before. And, you know, and very often when you're on the pass, the head chef, I don't know how it is in music, but the head chef is the last person to see the plate that goes out. And it's tricky because sometimes you just keep sending it back to the chef who didn't quite get it right, and you're taking away their confidence. You're diminishing them and you're mm -hmm. destroying them. But on the other hand, you know that you don't want to send something out. So it's a constant you know, judgment. How can you tell a musician who's just the one that didn't play the guitar the way? What do you do with someone who's played something that isn't it's what you it's want? Difficult. How, do you, how do you give that? I do my best to cast the people that I that that yeah. can do the work. And if not, I'll, I'll do it again with someone else. Tell me about some of the musicians and their food. Is there a musician that you actually well, look uh, at the, the, that you think one of? One of the things that, because the nature of the recording studio is this place you go to and sometimes you spend a long time knowing what you're doing and sometimes you spend a long time trying to figure out what you're doing or waiting for the thing to come that you're there to do but you don't know what it is yet. So eating in the studio is a standard and one of the things about Shangri-La, the studio that I have in Malibu, is most studios have one runner, maybe two, and we have lots of runners. Right. And when people come and order food, food comes very quickly, which mm. historically in studio, you'll order lunch and it might not come for two hours. Mm. Whereas for whatever reason, at Shangri-La, it's very uh, creature comfort oriented mm. and we get really good food really fast. And sometimes we'll even have a chef because there's a kitchen. Yeah. If you ever saw the movie, The Last Waltz, sure? the, the band are the in band. the kitchen at Shangri-La. Mm. Um, right. That's the Well, you came into studio. my house today and the first thing you said was, let's eat. Yes. You did. Quite quickly. It's the habit. <laughs> a friend of mine once said that his family had a rule that there should be no longer than 45 seconds when someone walks into your house that they have a drink in their hand. Yeah. And actually what I think that does is actually it's very nice because it means you're stopping what you're doing and you're giving somebody something when they come in the house. Beautiful. You know? And I think that means something. And so are there artists that you do associate more with food than, than others? What about Johnny Cash? Did he eat? Johnny Cash loved a restaurant in Los Angeles called the Ivy. Yeah. And whenever he would come to town, we would always go together to the Ivy. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. 
Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There are very few people who, even if you rarely see them, stay close to your heart. For me, it's Wolfgang Puck. I'm often asked who inspired Rose and I when we opened the River Cafe, and the answer is Wolfgang. Before he created Spago, the choice for choosing a restaurant was eat delicious food, but be sure to dress up and be prepared to feel intimidated by the sommelier, chef, or just the atmosphere in the room, or eat less well, but go out and have fun in a lively, exciting, friendly place. With Spago, Wolfgang taught us we could do both, and he turned the world upside down. He made pizzas luxurious, airport food delicious, wood ovens for cooking, and took chefs out of basement kitchens so diners could see them and they could see the diners. A few months ago, he came to the River Cafe for dinner with his family. To everyone working there, it felt like a visit from the gods. For me, it was a visit from a man I love but rarely see, a man who is close to my heart. Thank you. Tell me about your family. Did you grow up with good food? You know, it's very interesting. My mother was a chef, a professional chef, but she didn't own a restaurant. She worked for a small hotel on a beautiful lake in Carinthia, which is the southern part of Austria next Mm -hmm. to Italy and Slovenia. And so she was a good cook, and my stepfather was mm-hmm. a coal miner and totally crazy and alcoholic mm-hmm. and everything. And my mother was like an angel. I don't know yeah. how the yin and the yeah, yang get yeah. together, but yeah. it's uh, impossible. And when I was 14, I had to decide what to do. Because the school because said, oh, made you... Yeah, the school finished at yeah. 14. I was mm, finished with amazing. school. Yeah. And uh, we didn't have the money to go to Vienna to study. Yeah. I actually wanted to be an architect. Did you? Yeah. But then we didn't have the money to yeah. go. So then my mother found me a job as an apprentice. My stepfather said, cooking is not a profession for men. You should be a carpenter or you should be a mason or you should be a mechanic or whatever. Cooking is for women. And he said, you're good for nothing because I hated to help him and everything. So I still remember when I left, which was 50 miles away where I was starting my apprenticeship. When mm-hmm. I was 14 years old, I went to the train station with a little suitcase. Yeah. And then I... Uh, 
take the train. And as I was walking out the house, he said, oh, you're good for nothing. You're going to be back in a month and uh, cry for money and everything. And I said, I'm never coming back. At age 14. At 14, yeah. And then I go there, I started my apprenticeship, and the chef there was as crazy as my stepfather. So I went from one to the next. And, you know, what, what do you do? What I did say, he do? He was in the kitchen. He in was the kitchen, yeah. He was drunk all the time, too, and screaming like crazy, throwing things like crazy. Like, it happened in the old time more than yeah, we more. think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, three or four weeks into my apprenticeship, on a Sunday, Sunday lunch was always the busy day, and I was doing the potatoes and making the mashed potatoes. That mm. was like my job, and peeling onions and mm. carrots, washing the spinach. And we ran out of mashed potatoes. We ran out of potatoes. And at the end of the service, he screamed like crazy, oh, you're good for nothing, go back home. So he told me, okay, you're fired, go back home to your mother and everything. And I said, I cannot go back home, but my, especially with my stepfather, yeah. So that was probably the worst day in my in life. life. So I went on the thing and I said, I'm going to jump in the river and kill myself. Mm-hmm. And I was 14 years old. You know, I did not say, I said, I cannot go back home. So I was standing on the river there, looking down and say, what will happen if I die? You know, what is heaven or what is hell or what? And it was all these thoughts were going through my head. And then after a while, I said, you know what? I'm just going to go back tomorrow and see what happened. So I went back, back to, to the restaurant. Back to the restaurant. So I, I went. I couldn't sleep all night. I went really early to the restaurant. Then the apprentice who was above me came and saw me there. I said, oh, you're back. He mm. was so happy. I said, I don't have to mm. peel potatoes. So he mm. hid me down in the vegetable cellar. And uh, I was peeling potatoes there. And after a few weeks, the chef comes down and sees me there and starts screaming, what are you doing here? He said, get out of here and screamed and everything. And then I said, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. And then... <laughs> He called the owner. The owner was a little, had a little more empathy and uh, sent me to, they had another small hotel in town and they said, maybe he goes over there. And they had, they had a, a lady who was the chef mm. and she said, just do your job and be quiet and don't do anything stupid and everything will be fine. And sure enough, I stayed there for three years, did my apprenticeship and... Uh, after that, I left for France. When, when you think of your own children, don't you? We think about well, how we treat a 14-year-old, how you treat your children. I, I saw know. you the night you came in with your children. Yeah. And I saw the parenting. I saw the love. I saw the kindness, patience. And then you just think what you had I know. been through, you know. It's interesting. We had a young woman who worked for a very famous restaurant in London. And she said that she was once taking souffles out of the oven. And the chef came over and put a frying pan over her head and said, if these souffles don't rise, this frying pan's going to be on your head. And I said, what you should have done is put the souffles back in the oven, gone, got your coat, left the restaurant and gone to the police. You should go to the police because that is abuse. But, you know, it's somehow... That idea that somehow because everybody's under pressure in a kitchen, it's okay. It's not okay. It's old-fashioned and it's wrong. Yeah, you know? physical it's abuse, wrong. M- emotional mm. abuse is mm. totally wrong. It's and wrong. I think one of the lessons I learned from them, I said, I never want to be like my stepfather and I never want to be like the first yeah. chef I yeah. worked for because I think they did the opposite. And I said, you know, if somebody does, makes a mistake, somebody does something wrong, I'm going to show them how to do it right. And sometimes it takes more than once. But 
you want to teach people. And I think for me, that was really an important part. Yeah. And later on, I opened a cooking school. Yeah. So I had to yeah, teach yeah. people. Yeah, no. And so you got on the train and you went to, where did you went to France? So then I went on to France. I went to Dijon first and worked mm. in a restaurant called Trois Faisons. How old were you then? I was 17. 17. Yeah. So I said, I have a son now, 17. Yeah. I said, well, wow, if he would go, tell yeah. me tomorrow he's Anyways. going to work in Mexico City or somewhere, I would say, I don't know, yeah. not by yourself. I'm going to send a shadow for you. Yeah. And so I went to France, and then I was working there. And after like a year or so, I started to speak French. I didn't speak yeah. it at the beginning. And then we had a party at the restaurant. And uh, it was because we got a star in the Guide Michelin. Right. And the restaurant that, had a star. It, it just got a new star. It in didn't Dijon. have one, but yeah. it got a star. Yeah. And then I took one of these red books, looked through yeah. it, and I said, oh, shit, there, it's one star, two star, and three yeah. star restaurant. Yeah. So I said, I'm not going back to Austria before I don't work in, at least in a two star, hopefully yeah. in a three star. So I wrote to Bocuse, to Trois to La Serre, to Argent, you know, all these famous three star restaurants. The first one who said yes was Raymond Tully at Beaumanier in Provence. Oh, Beaumanier. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an amazing restaurant. Yeah, but he was. on the hill. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was the most amazing personality. Yeah. Not only he started cooking when he was like 50, professional, when he was 50 years old, oh, yeah. but he was so passionate about the ingredients. He had yeah. a lot of land there yeah. too. He had six gardeners who yeah. brought like the best cavallon, melon, or strawberries mm. or. Uh, peas or green beans, really small, you know. So it was really an amazing experience to have somebody at that age. He was already yeah. 70 years old, but he was so passionate. And, uh, you know, going back and forth in the dining room. And then he used to come into the kitchen with Elizabeth Taylor. And uh. all of us young guys <laughs> looked at her and said, oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, one time he came in with Marcello Mastroianni and Catherine Deneuve. Wow. And I said, oh, Jesus Christ, yeah, I want to be like him. Yeah, yeah. So I stayed there for two and a half years. And he was the first person, actually, who respected me yeah. and says, you know what? He made me feel good. Last night, after dinner in the River Cafe, I sat with the chefs. Usually, we talk about the evening service, what happened, who came, what we cooked. But this time... Knowing he was coming to the kitchen today, we spoke about our guest, Yotam Ottolenghi. They've all, the chefs, read his books. They've all eaten in his restaurants. And like me, love his food. In short, they were thrilled he was coming. We both live and work in cultures far from where we were born. Today, we will talk about separation and connection, Eastern and Western, Family and friends. I did read that your first word was, was it the Israeli <laughs> word for Hebrew word for soup? For well, it? it is the, dump, the kind of the little dumplings that go into the soup. So it has the word soup in it. Yeah. yeah. It was something I think my mom used to spread on the table while we were waiting for the food. And I just used to kind of grab yeah. them and eat them. Nice. And so going back then, starting at the very, very beginning, tell me about your early childhood in, in terms of food as well. What you know, yeah. did the- so I grew up in Jerusalem mm. and the food in Jerusalem at that point. Can was, I just ask you, were your parents born in Israel? Or my they- parents were born in Europe just before the Second World War. Right. Uh, so, and they immigrated with their parents as little kids just before the war in 1939. Mm. My mother was from a German family, so they were German Jews. Mm -hmm. And my father were, they were an Italian family from Florence. Really? Yeah, so my dad was born in in Florence. 
And, and they met in Israel? And they, so, yeah, they met in Israel uh, years later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Huh. And Jerusalem was... Uh, so I grew up in a, in a very kind of a non-traditional Jewish home, mm-hmm. very secular. Uh, food-wise, like we had pork, which nobody was unheard of, you mm-hmm. know. My mom had that butcher in Jerusalem, the one and only one that sold pork, but it was under the counter in the brown bag. Uh, yes, yeah, she, <laughs> she, <used, laughs> she used to come and buy a ham. Mm. And we used to get ham sandwiches for school, but you know we were not allowed to say what's in our sandwiches, and we were not allowed to share it with friends. So the cover story was that it was a turkey. Mm. Well, it was a very pink turkey. Brave <laughs> yeah. woman, brave woman to come from Germany. She she was from Germany, so yeah. she probably had pork in Germany. Yeah, and was not going to give that up. Yeah, yeah, they were very uh, secular, you know, mm. and so she they just had to have pork. But it was, you know, uh, the stories about these things, they sound quite, ino- you know, innocuous, but actually it was quite, it, yeah. it was a big deal. So that butcher, uh, when people found out that he, he was selling pork, you know, he'd been, his shop was vandalized and yeah. you'd have like people put like, uh, yeah. like glue in, in his locks so he couldn't open his, the, the shop the next day, etc. It was, in Jerusalem, food is not a neutral stance, you know, like all those decisions, all those things that happen political. have political implications. Yeah. What year would this have been? The 60s? So uh, this was so I was born in '68. So mm-hmm. we're talking about the '70s and '80s. Yeah, so as late as that. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 completely. So the food culture of the city was the food of the immigrants of well, yeah. from wherever they came, the yeah. Jewish immigrants, but also the Palestinian population, mm. which was so had such a rich, wonderful culinary history. And I feel that I grew up in this world in which uh, we ate very European food at home. Mm-hmm. My father was cooking traditional Italian dishes. And my mom was kind of an international cook, but with a very Germanic Mm. approach to cooking. But outside, you know, when we went out, we used to have Palestinian food, Mm. Arabic food. Mm. And that's the mix that I grew up having. And I I always thought that I was quite lucky to have had been exposed Mm. to all those kind of foods from quite a young age. Could your father find ingredients that he wanted for Italian cooking? Yeah, uh, he could. So first of all, they used to have uh, food... Like they, like I remember my grandparents because they couldn't really separate themselves from their Italian background. Yeah. So they used to have food sent to them. So we had to, we used to get like anchovy paste and olive oil and <laughs> and uh, biscuits and 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 cookies and things. So they always get these packages of Italian produce that arrived and parmesan. Yeah. So they lived about an hour from where we lived in Jerusalem. They lived in the suburb of Tel Aviv, and I used to come to their house as a kid with my with my dad and. The smell was just completely different. It smelled of Italy uh, in so many ways. So they kept the Italian connection going on. And they used to, we used, they used to travel in the summer because they had a house in the hills outside Florence oh. that we used to go to when I was growing up. So yeah. we, we had a lot of a lot of that. So in between the Italian and the Palestinian and the German yeah. influences, I've yeah. always oh. kind of had all that. Because I often think that, well, I often say that in my history as a, as an interviewer, that many of the people, especially immigrants, uh, talk more about their grandparents' food than their parents. That if you've moved from your culture to another culture, yeah. the mothers probably try and adapt. So if you have a family from Ghana, coming from Ghana to London, the mother would try and kind of still remember her food she grew up with, but would tried to adapt and the children completely adapted and would have the food of their friends but the grandparents when you went to their house they would cook the Ghanaian food or the Italian food or and my mother-in-law left Italy for 
London um, pre-war. And her father, who was kind of Florentine, slight aristocrat, would send her candied oranges every month, you know, <laughs> that she craved those kind of Italian, the Italian yeah. food of your culture. You know? Totally. And the only difference is that in Israel at the time, there wasn't like a cuisine as such. Mm. It was because it was just so early on and it was just so new and so I young. Right. So a, a national cuisine has not evolved. There was a Palestinian, the Palestinian food was mm. ex- extremely evolved, but what people would call Israeli food is something that evolved later. But mm-hmm. when I was growing up, there was the food that Polish Jews ha- would, would have mm-hmm. cooked or Russian mm-hmm. Jews or Libyan Jews or Moroccan Jews or Iraqi Jews. Those, each one had their own cuisine. But I always like to say, like in Jerusalem, it was like survival of the fittest, you know, like the best food from every culture would surface. And uh, you'd have... <laughs> that's lucky. Yeah, that's really good. So you'd have the Sephardic and you would have so the Ashkenazi. Have, so you'd so. have the Sephardic, you know, salads and like, yeah. and mezes, and you'd have like the babkas that would come from the Ashkenazi yeah, food. Yeah. And, and in some ways, like some restaurants in in Jerusalem these days, that what then when you go, that's what's featured. You know, like the best of every culture yeah, yeah, uh, that makes up the city. Did your parents take you to restaurants? Did you go out? Yeah, so we didn't ha- we didn't have um, great restaurants in Jerusalem in the sense in the way we have now. So yeah. this whole this whole revolution mm-hmm. in food has not happened yet. Um, so we ate. When we ate out, we used to go to a Palestinian restaurant. So the war just happened not long before, the 1967 war in which Israel occupied East Jerusalem. So um, in some ways, this is bef- the, the pre-traumatic times. You know, it was all very new and obviously it was complicated, but it was relatively peaceful. Mm. So I remember we used to go travel a lot into the West Bank. We used to go to Naples, to Jericho. Uh, to Hebron to have meals, wow. so we used to go to uh, Jericho and have like incredible what meals. Would you eat? Oh, we would have these spreads of delicious things that you find some of them you'd know and some of them you wouldn't. So, um, fr- from you know like hummus or labane, you know the strained yogurt, but you'd also have like local uh, herbs that be sautéed in in garlic and olive oil. They have incredible, um, so they have wonderful oranges. So you'd have mm-hmm. orange juice freshly squeezed. Um, a bit like Seville, like they have some of them that are cooking and some of them mostly for juicing. And because it's so hot and humid, it's like perfect for, mm-hmm. for citrus and lamb on the grill. So they have to cook lamb on an open grill and rice dishes like mm-hmm. makluba, like upside down rice cakes mm-hmm. and bulgur salads. And it was and a, olive oil, right? an amazing, yeah. wonderful yeah. olive oil, yeah. wonderful olive oil uh, and great freshly baked breads. Uh, pita breads and all and pita, and other variations on that theme because the Palestinians cook, uh, cook their bread on in a taboon, which is that you know that kind yeah. of ceramic uh, oven, or earthenware yeah. oven. Yeah. So so all that was there, and I really have really really strong memory of of yeah. driving down to Jericho and just having all these wonderful foods and coming back, but also in Jerusalem, I have such strong memories of these of these flavors. It's a question that I ask everyone if there's of food, we know people that we turn to for comfort and places we go for comfort. But if there's something that you would want to eat, um, is there food that you reach for when you really need comfort? So uh, I, I have to say that from all the things that I've had, it's things that my father used to cook or my Italian uh, grandmother. She used to make um, 
And it's not just because I'm at the River Cafe, I'm saying that. Yeah. <laughs> it, she used to make gnocchi alla romana. Ah, yeah. Yeah, and it's the one smell that I have that as, you know, w people talk too much about, you know, those, you know, moments uh, of childhood. But this is really one that has, stands so strong in my mind, in my head, that is the thinly um, spread uh, semolina gnocchi on a tray dotted with butter and cheese, and it would go under the grill and all. And since she... They did get great cheese from Italy, and they had great Parmigiano, and they, she would put that under the grill, and it would just melt. And that kind of semolina, mm. soft, you know, milky with uh, a grated cheese, melted cheese on top. It's just, it's just such a childhood favor, and that is definitely the one that brings the most comfort to me. And I've never managed to do it as not even remotely as good I'm as sure she does. That's <laughs> the thing. I know. Well, we'll try and make it for you if I'd known. Uh, we would have put it on the menu today. Do you today. have it on the menu sometimes? Uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I Especially love it. We, we have it on very often when we have white truffles mm. because it's one of those delicious recipes which you can if you it, it's delicious without white truffles and but it does take because it's like it's almost kind of like a cheese souffle. Isn't That's it? right, you know, it's like a cheese the, souffle. But with semolina and they are so delicious. So we're going to go ahead and have lunch in the River Cafe now without. Gnocchi Romana, but the next time we do, we'll definitely have <laughs> it together. And, and I'll I take hope you up soon. It. Yes, let's do it. Thank you Thank so you much. Very much. Thank Great time. Thanks. If you like listening to Ruthie's Table Four, would you please make sure to rate and review the podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts? Thank you. Ruthie's Table 4 is a production of iHeartRadio and Atomai Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Yeah. Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated, we're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.